0: This little light of mine, welcome to This Little Light of Mine, the podcast shine. where we stand up for love and prioritize mental this health, emotional health, and spiritual health in your life and in the lives shine. of all people. Here's your host, this this James Powell.
1: Hello and welcome to Season 2, Episode shine. 2 of this little light of mine. My name is James Powell and I'm so glad that you're able to join me for the first story episode of season two called, Surrounded by Help. Before we jump into today's story, I want to thank you all for the warm welcome back between seasons. It is so great to hear from so many of you and to hear how you're growing, evolving, and loving in your own lives. So what comes to mind when the topic of asking for help comes up? Is asking for help something that comes easy for you? Is asking for help something that you avoid? Or does asking for help depend on the type of help that you need? For instance, is it okay to ask for help moving a heavy object, but not okay when the help you need is more emotional in nature? In today's story episode, I'm going to share how my challenges in asking for help go way back to some of the fundamental teachings that I learned as a child growing up in the church. And how those teachings have had some pretty impressive impact on how I've shown up at work, in relationships, and even with myself. Here's today's story episode called Surrounded by Help. For most of my life, I've been afraid to ask for help. Because asking for help meant getting hurt. And as a kid, I thought I was supposed to avoid getting hurt. When you're a child, you're forced to trust those in your family, your community and your culture to provide for your basic physiological needs, needs like air, water, food and shelter. You're also forced to look to these same individuals to provide for your safety, things like your personal security, your emotional security, your financial security and your general well-being. Who else learned about Maslow and his hierarchy of human needs while in school? Well, if we follow Maslow's theory of human motivation and climb his hierarchy of needs up the pyramid, we build upon these most basic human needs, define belonging and love, esteem, cognitive needs like creativity, curiosity, and meaning, aesthetic needs like beauty and nature, self-actualization, until we reach the top of the pyramid and start exploring transcendent needs like spirituality, Much of our current view of developmental psychology is based on Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Maslow's theory describes the pattern through which human motivation works and grows across a lifetime. And according to Maslow, an individual must satisfy or achieve each stage within themselves before they move up the pyramid towards the next stage and eventually, or hopefully, gain self-actualization and spirituality. Now if you speak to doctors, sociologists, psychologists, scientists, and even pastors, they will affirm Maslow's theory and talk about the importance of helping individuals develop and grow through each of the stages. Maslow's theory works and it makes sense for most people. But Maslow's theory, it wasn't enough for me and it isn't enough for me. And for many other 2S LGBTQ or BIPOC humans around the world, Maslow's theory isn't enough for them either. Maslow's theory was formed based on a couple of giant caveats that are rarely talked about. Maslow states very clearly that individuals should follow their own inner guide and not be swayed by external opinions or experiences. His theory also assumes that individuals start life and are viewed as valid human beings with a right to live grow, thrive, and love. Neither of those caveats were true for me. Growing up in the church, I did receive my most basic physiological needs. My general safety needs were met, and I guess you could say that love and social belonging needs were met too. But there was a big but that I discovered along the way. All of these needs would be met if I fit into the man-made definition of what the church considered valid. According to Dr. Maslow, those who would climb to the top of this hierarchy of needs were superior performers who had strong values and qualities in their personalities that they considered to be worthwhile and important. He went further to share that an individual's values cannot be imposed by church, society, parents or any other externals. In order to become self-actualized. An individual must choose and define their own set of values and make their own decisions. As a closeted gay child growing up in the church, I wasn't taught that at all. I was taught to absorb man-made values of church and community leaders, and that I needed to follow the direction and decisions of leaders if I wanted to be considered valid. As a closeted gay child, I knew that my church did not consider me valid, Being different or unique was not okay when it came to what I was taught that I was allowed to believe. For me, to have my most basic needs met, I had to hide parts of myself to survive. As a young child, reaching out to ask for help wasn't an option because it meant sharing who I really was. And sharing who I really was ran the risk of being sent away to be reprogrammed by many of the conversion or reparative therapy quote-unquote, ministries that continue to exist even today. Instead of asking for the help that I actually needed, I taught myself to put on the armor of God and learn to push forward as best I could manage. It wasn't until I hit rock bottom in my early 40s did I finally learn the transformational power of asking for help. After surrendering and calling out to God for help, sharing my situation with my best friend, and starting a conversation with my family doctor, I started to realize that where I thought I was lost and alone, I was actually surrounded by help. One of the spaces where I needed lots of help was at work. I was going through an incredibly challenging time with a member of my team, and i had escalated the situation to my boss on a number of occasions. He repeatedly brushed off the situation and didn't want to get involved in anything that involved any type of conflict. After a major blow-up, I started to work with an executive coach where I shared some of my challenges. I shared that I was angry, frustrated, and running on fumes. During our sessions, he listened, he asked powerful questions, and he helped me to start a journey inward. He helped me to start valuing my time energy, and overall contribution. And after our first session, he walked over to his bookshelf, grabbed a book, and handed it to me. And as I read the title, The Asshole Survival Guide, How to Deal with People Who Treat You Like Dirt, he smiled and shared that this book would address much of what he saw was going on in my office. He was bang on, and not only for the challenges I was experiencing at work, In asking this coach for help, I learned how to value myself more. I learned how to continue to perform with excellence while also understanding that it's okay to move beyond those who don't appreciate you and to use that new space to invest in what I needed the most. His advice may sound simple, but to me it was groundbreaking. In essence, I was given the permission to care less about others and to care more about myself. This was counter to everything that I had been taught growing up in the church. A church I was taught to respect and honor authority, fulfill all of my commitments, to be a good and faithful servant, and about the gifts that we receive when we put others' needs ahead of our own. Up until this point, I was proud of being a servant leader and a good corporate citizen. I trusted my leaders and fought for my team members, But looking back now, I can see how this approach helped me to perform. But without proper boundaries and self-respect, I was investing all of myself into others, and that opened me up to disrespect, chaos, and abuse. During this period of my life, I also needed lots of help outside of the office. And I didn't realize it at the time, but much of the chaos that I was experiencing at the office was driving my addictive behavior beyond the office walls and into the rest of my life. Working with my coach helped me to reprioritize work and allowed me to find some space from the office drama. Over our sessions together, he asked many more powerful questions, two of which were, What do you need right now? And how can you give that to yourself? For years I'd been using several addictions to run from and numb the pain of feeling unlovable, unworthy, and feeling broken. When I went inside and listened to those questions, I realized what I needed right now was to focus on my overall mental health and to stop self-medicating to escape the pain. After years of the internet to escape my pain, to find more sex, drugs, alcohol, and distraction, I went online and did a search for the opposite. I opened my laptop browser and typed in addiction recovery. I was blown away to discover that I was surrounded by a myriad of recovery groups, programs, resources, and friends. As I quickly fell down this new online rabbit hole, my curiosity led me to a new type of internet escape. Instead of numbing the pain that I was feeling, I started to discover others who were talking about similar pain and how they were facing it. As I read their stories, my mind started to focus on personal friends who had been on similar journeys themselves. Instead of viewing these friends as social pariahs and people to avoid, I felt a new desire to reach out, to connect, and to ask for their help. I took a chance and I quickly typed out a text to a friend who had dropped out of the scene a few years earlier and asked if he would meet me for dinner. He did, and our conversation helped to form the foundation for my personal recovery plan. Over dinner I shared with him about the mess that was going on in my life. He was kind, generous, and supportive with his listening, but the more that I shared with him, the larger the smirk grew on his face. Finally, I couldn't take it and I said, what are you laughing about? He looked at me and said, I can't believe that you're sitting here telling me all of this. I judge myself so harshly because of who I thought you were. I was so ashamed to be around you because I didn't want to be compared against your perfect life. You had the job, the travel, the homes, the boyfriends, but I never considered that all of that could have been an illusion it never even entered his mind that I could be struggling too and trying to keep up appearances just like he was. We both looked at each other and laughed and I responded with a simple but glib, I guess I fooled you and I guess I fooled myself. With that exchange out of the way, he started to share some of his own recovery process from the previous two years. He invited me to attend one of his local AA groups where I would have the opportunity to connect and meet with many others who had started their own recovery journeys. In those first few months, I tried out dozens of AA, SLAA, SAA, and NA meetings all over the city. Day after day, I was surprised by how much help existed within a 5 kilometer radius of where I lived. Visiting these rooms helped save my life and they were the pattern interrupt that my body and soul needed for healing. Before being introduced to the rooms, I was using food, sex, work, drugs, and alcohol to fill the void of being disembodied. Instead of feeling lost and alone, these rooms provided me with a new type of community and a place where I could escape back into my body, listen to what I needed to heal, and to start to deconstruct the many decades-old lies that I had been taught about my sinful and broken nature. Gradually, after trying out many, many different groups, I started to find groups where I felt at home and where I could connect with others that I felt comfortable opening up to. Looking back, I am so thankful for so many of the individuals in those rooms. One night comes to mind that proved to me that God really does have a wicked sense of humor. It was a Tuesday night Sex and Love Addicts Anonymous group that is regularly held in the basement of a Catholic church. That particular week, the church needed to use their basement for an event, but asked if we would be comfortable moving upstairs and meeting in the main sanctuary. And there we were, 15 people in recovery for sex and love addiction, sharing stories of strength and hope in a place that was traditionally used to oppress, control, and shame women and other 2SLGBTQ plus individuals. The space that was used to harm so many of us was now being used as part of our healing and recovery journey. My share that night was the observation that God will find a way to circumvent the man-made lies used in God's name so that a message of inclusive love and a path towards healing for every single human can be made. After several months of sitting in these rooms, I felt ready and I gathered the courage to ask someone if they would be my sponsor to help me walk through the 12 steps. After group one night, I walked up to an individual and while stacking up chairs, I asked if he would be my sponsor. He looked me up and down and said, no, you're too new. I don't think you're serious and I don't want to waste my time. Initially, I felt gutted, but the honesty in his words gave me the strength to push forward and to share why I thought I wasn't going to be a waste of his time. Or my own. Eventually, he agreed to have dinner before a meeting to hear more about my personal story and to hammer me with dozens of blunt questions about my past, other recovery tools I was using, and why recovery was a must for my life. After I answered his questions, he explained verbally and in writing that his approach to being a sponsor wasn't about being a friend, an accountability partner, or a therapist. For him, a sponsor was strictly about walking someone through the 12 steps of recovery. Before we left dinner, he also gave me two more hoops to jump through before he would consider taking me on as his sponsee. First, I needed to formally write out my personal plan and my commitments for my recovery. Second, I needed to reach out and start working with a therapist who specifically focuses on trauma. His approach pissed me off. Who the heck does this guy think he is? What does he know? I already have a therapist. I've already shared my plan for recovery. This is garbage and this guy is so full of himself. But what I would soon discover in the weeks ahead is that this was the exact type of help that I needed. What beliefs have you adopted about asking for help? Do your beliefs about asking for help change based on gender, age, race, social status, or the role or title the other person may have at work? Where did these beliefs come from? And are these beliefs still valid for you today? One of the things that I'm learning about myself and my relationship with asking for what I need is the massive role that trauma and shame plays. The shame that many traumatized individuals carry with them leaves them fragmented and disembodied. This means that when a person believes that they are broken, unworthy, or even sinful, they ignore what they intuitively know, what they need for themselves. Their shame and trauma has taught them to discount and disconnect from themselves. When you believe that something is wrong with you, You stop trusting yourself as you start to disconnect from your inner knowing and your body. When you start to disconnect from your body and from what you intuitively know that you need, your world can start to turn into a scary and dangerous place where everything is good or bad, black or white, of God or of the devil. You end up focusing on the extremes while ignoring all the gray and the nuance of life. When you stop trusting yourself, two new phenomena start to take hold. You can start to fear and distrust others entirely. This is where asking for help can seem like a herculean task. The other phenomena that can start happening is the complete opposite. You start placing all of your trust in someone outside of you. When you distrust yourself and fear the world around you, you can fall prey to what's called savior syndrome. We see this when humans start to place all of their trust in church leaders, politicians, celebrities, gurus, corporate leaders, brands, or organizations. When this occurs, a traumatized person can abdicate all of their innate feelings and knowledge and give that control over to another. Our human brains are designed and hard-coded to be social and to protect the communities that we are involved with. And this is where trauma wreaks havoc with our brains and can explain why so many individuals stay in places and relationships that are actively damaging them or damaging others. The traumatized person believes that because they are bad, unworthy, evil, or sinful, that they have done something to deserve any mistreatment, abuse, or anger that they may receive from the person or organization that they have given their trust to. The black and white thinking of a traumatized individual can also believe that if they share their truth, that they will then be responsible for destroying the community that they've been part of. This is why so many individuals never speak up. And when individuals do not feel safe to speak their truth, that shame and pain continues to fester. For example, the abused partner that stays because they believe that they're responsible for being abused and that if they speak up, it would destroy the relationship or the reputation of the other person. Or the church members that have first-hand knowledge of abuse but don't speak up because they believe that speaking up would destroy all of the good that the church does. Or what about the corporate director that doesn't speak of financial crimes or management harassment because they fear that by sharing the truth it would destroy the entire company and would harm their friends and colleagues who they work with. And what about the child that doesn't speak of parental abuse? Because they believe that speaking up would destroy the family and the entire world that they depend on. For many who have experienced childhood trauma, these effects continue to grow and morph if the root of the trauma is not addressed. As these children grow, they continue to blame themselves for not speaking out and for not doing more to protect themselves. For years, I agonized and battled with myself around my sexuality and about not coming out sooner. I can now see that I intuitively knew that in order to protect myself, I needed to hide myself. I did it to keep myself safe. And for years after coming out, I didn't speak about abuse, unsafe environments, and harassment that I received at church, at work, or in the community, because I believed that I was at fault And that by speaking out, I would somehow be responsible for hurting the reputation of those in control. And I took it to be my responsibility to protect those abusers. If you're a survivor of childhood trauma, know that you are not at fault. Children depend on their families and their communities for survival. They need to be safe. Children who hide and do not speak out are only doing so to protect themselves. But we do come out and we start to authentically share who we are when we feel safe. As renowned trauma specialist Peter Levine shares in his book entitled In an Unspoken Voice, trauma sufferers in their healing journeys learn to dissolve their rigid defences. In this surrender they move from frozen fixity to gently thawing and finally free flow in healing the divided self from its habitual mode of dissociation they move from fragmentation to wholeness in becoming embodied they return from their long exile they come home to their bodies and know embodied life as though for the first time while trauma is hell on earth its resolution may be a gift from god I believe that a major part of our healing and recovery journey comes when we learn to accept and appreciate how beautiful, wonderful, and unique God has created each and every one of us, including me and especially you. Thanks for joining me today, and I look forward to returning in two weeks' time for our first interview episode of Season 2, where I will be joined with Dr. Mike Rosebush, who will share his wild journey of what he calls the most unusual gay Christian life. Dr. Rosebush is a former Air Force fighter pilot, former focus on the family president, and former director of professional counseling at Exodus. Mike will share his experiences and his learnings when he came out while in the Air Force, came out while at Focus on the Family, and boldly shared the truth that no one ever changes while working for the disgraced reparative therapy company, Exodus. Thank you for being with us today. And before I go, I wanna remind you, you are a gift from God. You're worthy of asking for the help that you need. You're designed with a powerful voice, no matter who you are. We need to hear what you have to say. You matter. You are needed. You are wanted. And you are loved. And there is nothing that you can do to change that.
0: Thanks for listening to This Little Light of Mine. To learn more about our guests today and for links from our show, visit www.thislittlelightofmine.ca. If you enjoyed this episode or feel that it could bring love and acceptance into someone else's life, please like, rate, review, and share so that we can build our community and bring more love into the world for all people. Thank you for sharing your time and listening to our stories today. And we would love to hear your story too. Visit the Get Involved section of thislittlelightofmine.ca to share your voice. We love being in community with you and look forward to sharing more with you next time. Now go and let your light shine bright because you are loved.